Hello, everybody. Welcome to the April 2019 Mark Leverage podcast. Great to have you along. Now, whether you're listening to this while driving to work in the car or whether you're listening to this while in the gym or out on a run on the streets, whether you're listening to this while sopping a glass of wine or drinking a cup of tea in the comfort of your own front room, or whether you're listening to this as one per- at least one person does while sitting in the bath, I'd just like to say thank you for listening to it at all because there are a lot of magic podcasts out there these days for you to consider. So I'm really pleased that you've decided to spend the next half an hour in my company. And I've put together a whole load of uh, different topics to chat with you about as usual in the next 30 minutes. And I'm going to start with um, talking a little bit about show fees. It seems to go round in circles. The uh, Every now and again, the, the internet will kind of light up for a while with uh, lively exchanges of people giving differing views about how much magicians should charge for their services. And I suppose, very broadly speaking, there are two ends of the scale. There are, there are, there's the camp in which all the people are who believe that you should charge a high price and that magicians actually don't value their services highly enough and because magicians don't value it highly the paying public won't won't pay high prices and they feel that you should charge high prices in order to get what magicians should justify for their skills and there's other people who think well well no actually in my marketplace i need to work uh, i want to earn some money i can't necessarily earn the high fees I'd rather earn something rather than nothing. So I'm quite happy to go out for low fees and perhaps even negotiate on those fees. So these are the two ends of the spectrum. And then I suppose there are arguments for somewhere in between. But in a way, all the arguments have validity um, because I don't think it's possible for everybody to charge very high prices. You say, well, no magician should charge less than £1,000, no matter what show they're doing. There are people who would say that. I never go out for less than £1,000, they would say. Well, in their marketplace, with the people that they mix with, in the social circles that they're entertaining in, this might be a possibility. Maybe in the area that they live, there are a lot of wealthy people who would expect to pay high prices for magicians. But then, of course, in other parts of the country, in, in, in whether the demographic is not of having lots of rich people, perhaps, then that would be ridiculous. If you if you only ever charged a thousand pounds, you would never work ever. So um, there is there are, in fact, lots of different levels that people are perhaps bookers are prepared to pay. And the fact that magicians are prepared to jump in at all these different levels, some say, well, I'm going to charge so many hundred. Somebody else says, I want to charge so many thousand. That's, I think this is a good thing because we're covering all the bases. So when somebody comes along and they've only got, let's say, 200 pounds to spend, then there are going to be a load of magicians who can quote a fee that will fit into that budget. And then other people who come along who've got a couple of thousand pounds to spend and who are looking for what they would consider to be a high price quality act will be looking for the people, not the people who charge 200 because well, they can't be any good. They're going to be looking for the, the more expensive um, sort of fee earners. So it, it works. It, it all is valid. And I don't think we should try to force either all magicians to take all 
low fees or high fees, it's good, I think, that there is this spread. Uh, and I think also that the, the, what the actual fee is that you ask for is down to a lot of factors. It's not just, I want to be extremely rich, therefore I'm going to charge thousands of pounds for every show. It, it's, it's more pragmatic for most people than that. Some people say, well, look, you know, I'm trying to supplement my, the income I get from my job through magic. And it's really important to me that I turn over, let's say, £500 a month in shows. Well, for somebody like that, they can't afford to pick and choose because if they don't get some of that £500, they're in a lot of financial trouble. And so the motivation, if somebody comes along and says, well, I can't afford your fee of 200 will you accept 150 the, the temptation to drop the fee and to find a reason to accept the 150 rather than get nothing is highly motivating, I would imagine. Other people, uh, and I would probably count myself in, in this bracket, I've reached the, the, the time of my life where, fortunately, I don't need to chase every penny like that. And so I can pick and choose more. So while I, in my area, I can't charge the, the very high fees as some people get in other areas, I get a reasonable fee and I work as much as I kind of want to in a way. Um, and I'm a sort of mid-range, yeah, mid-range, I guess, type of performer who gets mid-range fees. Uh, and I'm happy with that because that does for me. It means I get out, I work, uh, I entertain people, which I love to do anyway. I make some, compared to, let's say, an hourly rate of anybody else's job, I'm actually getting very well paid for what I do. But I'm not the most expensive person and, and I have no expectation that I'm trying to be the person who charges a thousand plus every time they go out to work. So the, the discussion with fees, it goes backwards and forwards. People are banging the table and saying you, you're, you're, you're too cheap or you, you should charge higher fees all the time. I don't think people should. I think people should find what they're comfortable with, look at what they need in terms of income from it, if you like, and then set a fee that's commensurate not only with that expectation, but also with what they are likely to be able to get in the in the area in which they live. It's an interesting thing, though, fees, and, and people get quite uh, energised by the discussion. But in the final analysis, it's all up to each of us to, to make that personal decision and then to set our fees accordingly. I had an email the other day from one of my eClub Pro members and he sent me an email to tell me that unfortunately he decided to stop his membership to the club. And in the course of an exchange of emails about this between us, he um, took the trouble and the time to explain to me why he was backing out of membership. And the reason that he gave me was because that he could not, he said, get over the intense feeling of nerves that performing for the lay public, if you like, brought on in him. He enjoyed the practice, he enjoyed getting tricks ready, but every time he went to perform, he, he just dissolved because he just couldn't control his shaking hands and his feelings of, of tension. And I thought to myself, well, and as I said to him, what a shame this is that he was, in a way, backing out of magic, because I got the impression he was backing away from magic. And apparently this is something that he's done before. He sort of got involved with magic, got to a certain point, got discouraged, 
left it, come away, and then sometime they may come back to it again. And it seemed to me what a, a an interesting but rather sad result that this has produced in somebody. That magic, and we all know that performance nerves affects just about everybody to a greater or lesser extent, but to affect somebody so badly that they decide to remove themselves from magic altogether seems a great pity. I mean, in some ways you could say, well, there's no point in studying magic and practicing it and watching it and going to magic clubs and learning about it if you're never going to perform it. And in some ways, I think there is some validity in that argument. But on the other hand, it doesn't have to be true for everybody, does it? If the the practice itself, if the learning of the secrets, if the watching of the instructional DVDs or online videos, if watching magic on YouTube, if that produces, as a hobby, for a hobbyist, produces pleasure, then why take it any further? You don't have to. There's no unwritten rule that says, well, I'm sorry, you've watched that DVD, you've now got to go out and perform that trick you've just been watching to the lay public. Well, of course there isn't. You don't have to do that. Take the pressure off yourself. If you are a nervous person who is very nervous when performing, then if you don't have to perform, why put yourself through it? Just enjoy. It's like magical historians. Magical historians are often not performers. They just enjoy studying the history of magic uh, and everything that to do with magic, but they don't necessarily want to go out and perform it all the time. So I thought it was a real pity that uh, he decided to, to withdraw uh, in so fully from magic for those reasons. Um, he, there are things in eClub Pro, some of the advice videos and so on, that which deal with controlling nerves. And I'm sure he will have watched those and, and probably tried some of those techniques. But for him, it clearly wasn't enough. He wasn't able to put these techniques sufficiently into practice for it to, to quell the nerves and therefore allow him to perform. But I see no reason why he shouldn't have still continued to enjoy membership and or just stay in magic generally uh, and not have that expectation that he has to go out and entertain people with the knowledge that he has. So I hope that eventually he will come back to magic because magic's a fantastic hobby no matter what level you intend to take it to. When you're putting an act together and trying to select material for it, or if you're a strolling magician and you're trying to decide which tricks to take with you when you go out to, to do a gig, how do you decide on what tricks you're going to take? Do you take tricks that you like doing or do you take tricks that your audience will enjoy watching? Now, I know the two things are not mutually exclusive. Tricks that you enjoy doing, hopefully, will be ones that the audience will enjoy watching. And of course, naturally enough, when you enjoy performing something, the likelihood is that you'll put it across in such an entertaining way that the people watching will like it. But I'm referring more to the the bias, perhaps, that we have towards certain tricks because we as magicians are excited about them, not necessarily because they're good tricks to entertain the lay public. I, I know I've done this myself. I've I've come up with an idea that I'm excited about and it's a trick that I am desperate to do. So I will take it to, with me to a gig and at some point, hopefully, I'll get to perform it. If, it. if it's a strolling magic gig, of course, I might get to perform it more than once. 
And sometimes I can feel a little bit disappointed with the reaction that I get from the effect. And I'm thinking, well, what's wrong with it? Well, actually, there's nothing wrong with it as such, but it wasn't kind of ready and it perhaps wasn't suitable. The actual trick itself wasn't suitable for the conditions under which I was trying to force it to be used. I allowed my enthusiasm and excitement over the trick to, if you like, sway me into doing it when I really shouldn't be doing it. And I'm sure that there are a lot of magicians who watch the adverts, uh, the latest online adverts for the, the latest miracles sold by the major magic dealers. They invest perhaps a lot of money in, in the, the props and so on. They learn the tricks, they practice them up, they put them in their act and they're really excited but it may actually not be a trick that the audience particularly engages with. It's just that the magician's really excited about it and wants to do it. So maybe not the best reason to try something brand new. There are lots of classic tricks and the, that can be chosen that are well-known audience pleasers. That's why they've been around for a long time, of course. It's because they have stood the test of time audiences like them there's something about them whether it's the presentation or the magical effect that that it creates that lay people actually really really enjoy it they, and so if you look to classic tricks most of the time you can't go wrong an example of this would perhaps be let's say the sponge balls the sponge balls are a classic in my view anywhere it's a classic trick but there are some people of course who don't like to do the sponge balls because they think well wow, that's old school that's old stuff well it might be but it it is still it's a classic trick it still works really well for lay people especially lay people who haven't seen it before and it has stood the test of time and is therefore worth considering now you might think as a magician oh do i really have to do the sponge bunnies for lay people or the sponge balls for lay people wow that's so so old school that's so boring but the audience likes it. So shouldn't you give the audience what they like and not just what you like? An interesting thought, really, I think, that there are times when there are tricks which we should be doing, perhaps, or which we could try, and which audiences always like, and we askew those for in favour of tricks which we are excited about. And, and maybe that's a good thing in one way. It makes us push out into uncharted territory, trying new tricks, and they can become audience pleasers, even if they're not initially, they can become tricks that the audiences really, really like. But I think sometimes we will look at certain tricks in a, in a skewed way because we're excited and we like the idea of doing it, but actually the trick is not that great for entertaining people at all. And really what we ought to do is to either put it aside, come up with a better way of doing it that's more entertaining, or just choose something else that's already tried and tested. My wife, Roz, is a musician. She's only an amateur, uh, but she's played musical instruments all her life, right from when she was a child. And although she would always modestly say that she's rubbish at it all, she really isn't. She can play very well, and she plays a number of different instruments. She plays the piano and the flute, recorders... So she, she does have a lot of musical knowledge. And even though she's been playing musical instruments right from when she was a child, she still 
has music lessons every couple of weeks at the moment. She still plays in a wind band and practices uh, with them every Thursday evening in preparation for concerts that they do. And she is always practicing at home nearly every day, if she can, for half an hour or so, even though she has so many other things uh, that she needs to do with her time. And this expectation that she has that she will never be any good, but that she's going to try and get to be as good as she possibly can be, I think is incredibly laudable. And it makes me uh, slightly embarrassed when I think about the dedication that I put into magic. I love magic and, and I do magic just about all the time being a pro, but I can never say that I would put as much practice and effort into my art as she does into her music. If there's these days, if I come across a routine that requires some slight that I don't know or that I can't actually do, if I can't practice it up in a relatively short period of time, I I tend to put it down and, and not bother, or I find a way around it. I use my magical knowledge to find an easier way to do it. I don't necessarily sit down and put in hours and hours of practice. And I could say, well, I don't have the time to do that. Well, I don't, but nor does she. But she still practices because the expectation is that to play music well, you have to constantly improve yourself. You have to constantly practice. Whereas with magic, there doesn't, or certainly with, with me and I suspect with a lot of other people, there's not quite that expectation. Now, when you're very young, uh, I know certainly when I was at university, for instance, I used to practice a lot. I didn't have a very broad skill base at that time. And that's when I got it. By practice, I was taught a load of moves and I used to practice them. And I ended up with an arsenal of moves that I could use and which I still use now. But I very rarely now extend that because I'm happy with the pool of magic skills that I have. And there are so many choices for tricks that I can do using items, if you like, from this skill set that there's not really any motivation for me to go out and practice all these other things because there is so much magic I can already do. And if I can't do it, as I say, I'll find a way around it. So I find that really quite interesting that the expectation that I have is that I'll find a way around it to make it easier. And the expectation that she has is that she needs to have lessons, she needs to keep practising. And yet she says she's rubbish at it all. And she clearly isn't rubbish. She's not a concert pianist. She's not going to play in the London Philharmonic or anything like that. But I think she plays beautifully. She can sight-read music. I think that's amazing. You can just put something you've never seen before down in a piece of music down in front of you and basically have a go at playing it and do it fairly well right from the first time you see it. That's incredible. That's a great skill. And yet she still practices and practices. So maybe magicians should take a leaf out of musicians' books and realise that, OK, if your standard is not as high as you want it, that you do perhaps have to put in the effort. But on the other hand, if you already have a broad skill set, uh, there is actually no motivation to do so because there are so many other things you can do with the skills that you already have. So that's why so many people take up magic and not perhaps so many people take up music. 
If somebody asked you to create the perfect magic convention, what would it look like? Have you ever thought about it? Because there are people out there who are creating magic events that we all go to and who are constantly looking for ways to entice us to attend and to put on something that is relevant to us and that we will want to pay money to go and watch. And we get there, and most of the time, let's face it, unless the thing is totally stellar, you always hear people moaning, complaining about this and that and the other. Which I always think, having organised events myself and knowing how incredibly difficult it can be to please everybody all the time, basically you can't, but you're trying to please most of the people most of the time, and it and it can be a bit dispiriting sometimes when there'll always be somebody who will find something that wasn't right. So turn it round. Say, okay, instead of complaining about the, the events that I go to, what would I do if money was no object? How would I? What items would I put? What lectures? What show? What format? How would I do it? And if you actually sit down and think about that, you'll start to realise how difficult it is to actually come up with a format. Even if money was no object and you could organise anything, what do you actually want? You probably don't know. Bristol Society of Magic for many years has been running their, their One Day of Magic. And for years it's been, it was down at Western Supermare. And it was a general magic convention with lectures and, and sh a gala show in the evening and so on and so forth. And gradually over the years the popularity of the convention, which had not really changed in format hardly at all, started to decline as people perhaps got tired of the format, I don't know, just moved on to other things generally. And so they've tried, and they are currently in the process of creating, a new type of convention. It's called Magic in the City. They've moved it back to a hotel venue in the centre of Bristol, near to Temple Mead Station. And they are trying to create uh, an event that's a little bit different. Yes, it has lectures and shows, but the format of it is slightly different from what they were having to put on before out at Western Supermare. And I, because I am friendly with some of the people on the committee, I know how difficult this process has been. Finding the right venue, getting the right acts, deciding on what the, the, the format of the day is going to be in any case is all extremely difficult and not something that you can just do at the drop of a hat. So I, I really hope this, the, the convention is coming up um, in the middle of, of May. So I, I do hope that it's a success for them because I know how much effort they've put into it. And I hope that they get their, the, the results that they're hoping for. Uh, but I think generally the reason that conventions are changing is because it is getting increasingly difficult to please jaded, the jaded palates, quite frankly, of the average magician. And that's why conventions are becoming, a lot of them, are come, becoming a lot more niche. They're dedicated to one relatively narrow area of, of magic. So whether it's mentalism or whether it's sort of business magic, whether it's close-up, whatever it is, there are often conventions that are now not, no longer general conventions, but they're much more targeted. And I think the reason for this is because actually it's easier then to satisfy the people who attend. If you're a mentalist and you go to a general magic convention, there may be a mentalist on there somewhere and perhaps a mental act in the gala show.
but everything else may be nothing to do with mentalism. So if only two of the things that take place in the day are really of your core interest, then you may come away saying, well, that was a waste of time, didn't enjoy that at all. If, however, you go to the event, which is Vanishing Inc.'s day of mentalism, then everything is in, on topic as far as you're concerned because it's, it's all to do with mentalism. And for that reason, you're much more likely to enjoy just about everything that goes on in the convention. It's much easier to please a niche audience because you know that the people coming, you know what they want to see. You know what they want to hear and to experience. And so having that knowledge makes it, I think, a lot easier to produce a convention that those people will enjoy. And I, I suspect that that is why a lot of these events have now become much more targeted because the big general conventions, with the exception, obviously, of Blackpool, which, as we've said so many times before, is, is unique in its, uh, in its size and it can get away with having a, a relatively standard format simply because of the size and the scale of the whole thing in itself makes it unique. But for everybody else... Trying to find a different angle, I think, is the only way to survive uh, in these days when magicians have so much to choose from. When you perform magic for lay people, one of the most common things that they say to you after you've performed is, how did you do that? Their interest is often centred almost entirely on the method. Not anything else, just the method. How was the trick done? Because they don't understand it, because it contravenes all the laws of nature and in their sort of realms of experience they have no concept of how you can make the amazing things happen that you have, then they tend to focus entirely on what's the method. And years ago when the Masked Magician came along and purported to, to give people the solutions to lots of the tricks, of course, we know there are lots of solutions to any one trick, but to the lay people, it was, ah, oh, this is the solution. For some people, that was wonderful because, ah, now I know how the levitating lady is done. So that kind of satisfied that type of person. And I think there is sometimes um, a perception amongst lay people that magic is actually pretty easy because once you know the secret, how it's done, then you can do it. And that's why they always want to know, how do you do that? I mean, sometimes when I'm doing close-up, I'll get somebody to say, could you teach me a trick? I want to show my friends. Like, it's immediate. Oh, OK, then. Uh, let's, let's teach you something. I mean, you could. You could, <laughs> you could teach them some generic, easy-to-do trick. But in a way, I never do. Because I think, well, why should I? you're devaluing what I'm doing here by saying, oh, show me something simple I can go and impress my friends with. Well, why should I do that? I don't see any any good reason at all, just at the drop of a hat, to show someone something simple that they can go off and so, so-called impress people with. And I think that if you think about the way that, that magic is portrayed in films and on television, for instance... Magicians are rarely seen as cool characters. I mean, there are some exception, exceptions, but generally speaking, magicians are portrayed as buffoons, as fools, as Tommy Cooper type idiots who, who get everything wrong and uh, who can't really, who aren't suave and sophisticated. Now, we know that there are performers like that, and 
Tommy Cooper was a classic example of someone who made a career out of it. But there are also the Lance Burtons of this world, suave, sophisticated, clever, skilled magicians. And yet, despite the fact that the lay public, especially on YouTube these days, has access to all of the top magicians if they want to watch them, still the perception, I, I believe, with a lot of people, not all of them, but with a lot of them, is that magic is easy and that if you tell them the secret, then they could do it too. The fact that magic tricks are perhaps a, a given away, little magic tricks are given away in Christmas crackers or with cereal packets, or it constantly devalues in the, in the lay public size, I think anyway, what magic is. And so when we come along and we do our tricks, sometimes we have to kind of instill in them a feeling of, wow, this guy is not only do I not know how the tricks are done, but this is impressive stuff. This uses, and I, and I kind of like it when people say, oh, I know how you do that. That's sleight of hand, isn't it? And of course, quite often it isn't, but they think that it is. And now suddenly I like that because they're giving me credit for something, something skillful rather than just making the assumption, well, if I knew how you did that trick, I could do it too. So um, not all lay people are the same, of course, but I'm sure some of them do think that what we do is very simplistic. Right, well, that was a quick half hour. No, actually, it wasn't a quick half hour. It was exactly 30 minutes, but you know what I mean. It felt like it went really quickly. I hope you've enjoyed the topics that I've um, talked about. And don't forget, if there's ever anything that you want me to answer or talk about on one of the podcasts, just send me an email and suggest it. And if I haven't covered it before, I'll give it a go. Have a good month and I'll see you next time. Bye for now.